The division between Sunnis and Shias is almost as old as Islam itself. And although the two share many beliefs and practices, the political and theological gulf between them has become much wider in recent years, worldwide and even here in the UK. The war in Syria and sectarian violence in Pakistan, Iraq and elsewhere have all contributed to the polarization. I'm Shaima Khalil and in this edition of Things Unseen, I'll be finding out why these two main branches of Islam parted company soon after the death of the Prophet Muhammad and how deep the division really is today. As a Sunni Muslim, I'm the first to admit that most of us, whether Sunni or Shia, know little about each other. Here to help me shed some light on the differences from the Sunni perspective is Tim Winter, or Abdel Hakim Murad, as many Muslims know him. He's a lecturer in Islamic studies at Cambridge University. Tim, I'd like to start at the very beginning. What provisions did the Prophet Muhammad make in his own lifetime for who was to succeed him? There is not in the Quran or in the Prophet's own sayings what you might describe as a political ideology or a political process. Clearly, the religion has a political dimension because the Prophet himself was a political leader. But there is no specific scriptural text that indicates how somebody should legitimately come to power or whether there are means by which that person can be deposed. And was there a reason for that? I think it was farsightedness. I think that aware of his role in salvation history, he could see that to provide a political ideology in great detail, a blueprint for how the public life of the community always had to be ordered, would make Islam in the longer term inflexible and impracticable. And therefore, despite the rules about how you cut your hair and how long your fingernails should be, Islamic law regulates the life of the devout in considerable detail. There is no single verse in the Quran that indicates how somebody should assume political power. So when he died, who succeeded him and how was that decided then? Well, the Prophet dies rather unexpectedly, it seems. He contracted a fever and died in a matter of days. The community, of course, was thunderstruck. Everybody clearly agreed that prophethood was at an end. There wasn't going to be a new prophet appointed. However, clearly there had to be a unified political leadership for this new, still rather fragile, ramshackle political entity which he had presided over in Arabia. So many pressures were still simmering just beneath the surface. Arabia had never once been united before. For tens of thousands of years, it had been a nomadic tribal society without a single government or set of laws or single religion. In 23 years, he had unified it, taking it, as it were, from polytheism to monotheism, from tribalism to the idea that everybody was equal under a single law, abolished so many things that were axioms for the Arabs that the real danger was that they would just backslide and go back to the old tribal order. So clearly it was a crisis moment. In a sense, anything could have happened. What did happen was that somebody who had been particularly close to the Prophet, who had been his confidant, who had stood in for him in Medina when the Prophet was out on expeditions of various kinds, who was Abu Bakr, whose daughter had actually married the Prophet and who was related as well as being spiritually very close, who had been the one who accompanied the Prophet on his migration from Mecca to Medina, which was really the key event of his courier. He was, by popular acclaim, regarded as being, in some sense that was really not clearly defined at the outset, the Khalifa, that is to say the successor. Not a new Prophet, but a successor to, as it were, the Prophet's temporal authority, the head of state, to use a slightly anachronistic term. But inevitably, given the fact that you have 
more than 100,000 disciples of the prophet of the time. There were people who thought, no, we should go back to the old tribal days. There were some who said, we need a ruler in Mecca and we need a ruler in Medina. There were some who said, no, it has to be through primogeniture, like the kings of foreign countries where it has to be the first male descendant. Of course, the prophet didn't have any male issue, which made that a little easier. But there were some who thought that some kind of monarchic principle of primogeniture should be important. So the argument was a very sharp one. But overwhelmingly, the community did agree that Abu Bakr should be the first Khalifa, the first successor of the Prophet's authority. So Abu Bakr becomes the first successor of Prophet Muhammad, and he then basically becomes the first of four Khalifas who are called Khulafa al-Rashidin, or the rightly guided Khalifas, or or caliphs. But also early on, there was dissent, as you rightly say, there was disagreement. And some thought that actually Ahlul Bayt, or the family of the Prophet should become successors. And they were impersonated into Ali, his cousin and his son-in-law. The debate really was wide open because this was new territory for Arabia. Many people quite understandably thought that we need something like a royal system, and we need the nearest male sort of kinsman to be the successor. There was no real model in the ancient world for anything else. So what actually emerged in the context of really, if you're talking about the first few decades, it's before Sunni Islam and Shia Islam, as they later became known. This is an era in which everything is up in the air. The model that eventually became favored by the great bulk of the Prophet's disciples was something quite new, namely that it should be through public acclamation of somebody who was generally, through the good conscience of the community, regarded as the best man for the job. Of course, then Ali became the fourth caliph, the fourth leader of the Muslim community at that time. But that wasn't the end of the division. Another key moment in Islamic history is what happened to Ali's son, Hussein, one of Prophet Muhammad's grandsons. He met a very violent end in a battle when he was trying to reclaim the caliphate. And this happened in Karbala in what is now Iraq. Just tell us a little bit about that episode, because this then becomes the epitome, really, of not just a difference, but how Shia commemorate their history or the history of Islam. Early Islam is filled with painful moments, and perhaps the most painful was the death of the Prophet's grandson, Al-Hussein, Ali's son, at the Battle of Karbala. That's a moment that is lamented by Sunnis as well as by Shi'i Muslims. Al-Hussein is universally regarded as a saint and a hero by all Sunnis as well as Shi'is. It doesn't have to be a point on which the two denominations differ. Al-Hussein had marched out in an idealistic way at the head of quite a small band of supporters, hardly more than a hundred. He'd hoped that he would be supported by the townsmen of the city of Kufa, who had been supporters of his father, Ali, when push came to shove, they decided that to risk the ire of the caliphate, which was now located in Damascus, was irresponsible and not right and divisive. And so they sent him the famous letter saying that our hearts are with you, but our swords are against you. And so he was there alone with his faithful band in the desert at Karbala, near the city of Kufa, and the imperial army approached. And again, we have to look through the dusty lenses of subsequent historians. What actually happens is probably going to be beyond our capacity to to reconstruct. But am I right in thinking that this was the army of the then Sunni caliph, Yazid? It was the army of the Sunni caliph Yazid, but Yazid, somebody who is regarded as deeply problematic by the Sunnis as well as by the Shia, known as a sort of 
carousing womanizer, somebody for whom the president of the Prophet was of little interest. And it's clear that Yazid didn't want al-Hussein harmed, but in the thick of the battle, he and his disciples were mown down. And this resulted in a kind of thunderstruck horror that the Prophet and grandson somebody who, as a child, had played with him and been nurtured by him, should have been killed by fellow Muslims, at least by some of these wild tribesmen who were participating in the conflict. A very deep trauma. But it's not a trauma which is directly generative of the Sunni-Shi'i divide, because the Sunnis, as well as the Shia, commemorate, sadly, the Battle of Karbala in Turkey, for instance, in the month of Muharram, there are commemorations and recitals and everybody is sad over the death of al-Hussein. This is universal in the Sunni as well as the Shi'i world, but becomes a kind of symbol for the Shi'i conscience later on of everything that has gone wrong in God's world. The Prophet's own descendants, evidently, according to this monarchical point of view, the ones who have the just title to inheriting his political mantle should be cut down and should be martyred, even by people whose relationship to Sunnism was only marginal. The divide in those opening decades was exclusively political. The later doctrinal issues, which are real between Sunnis and Shia, were not thought of yet. It isn't a sectarian dispute, it's a political one. But what effect did the killing of Hussein have on that divide then? I think that the death of al-Hussein kick-started something that had already been latent amongst many of Ali's supporters, which was a sense that somehow the world was out of control, things were in a downward spiral, and a certain interest in the principle of martyrdom, sometimes sort of endless fixation from the point of view, at least of Sunni critics, a fixation on martyrdom, on tragedy, on sadness, on grief, which has often been regarded as constitutive of the Shi'i religious emotion, emerged. And its great focus is the death of al-Hussein, but the death of some of the subsequent imams also tend to bring to the surface this latent sense of, of tragedy and grief, which is one, I think, of the metabolic markers of Shi'ism. Sunnism tends to be more upbeat, optimistic, inclusive. It's produced forms of mysticism which are very much focused on ecstasy and love. Shiism does tend to have at its heart this idea of grief, sorrow, bereavement, tragedy. That probably is more important a marker of the divide between the two denominations than anything that's strictly doctrinal or legal. The way that people view the Battle of Karbala now, Sunnis and Shia, there is a great sense of, like you say, of sadness and the urge to relive the Battle of Karbala within the Shia sect, whereas within the Sunni sect, there is the admission that it happened, there is great sadness about it, but there isn't that urge to relive it and beat ourselves up about it. It's almost kind of, it happened, it's very sad, it's part of a, a dark patch of history, but that's it. And so I'm just interested to know how you think right now, Sunnis and Shia, how they relate to the Battle of Karbala. One of the things that human beings find it hardest to deal with is bereavement and particularly the sudden death of a loved one. One strategy that we can all have is to grieve for a while and then to move on. Another is to think that the best way of being faithful to the memory of the departed is constantly to remember, to look at old photographs, to visit the places where they used to live, to do things that grieving, mourning people very often do. And from the Sunni perspective, the Shia have been doing that for over a thousand years. And that's not spiritually healthy. Part of the classical Sunni critique of Shiism is that it is constantly recycling 
a memory that everybody knows is a catastrophic and bad memory, but in a way that ultimately can call into question the good purposes of God, the benignness of human nature, the capacity of human beings to overcome mourning and to move on. And that is, I think, one of the deeper issues that are at stake between the two traditions. It's not that Sunnism does not mourn al-Hussein, but because Sunnis believe he was martyred, for his beliefs, he is in the mercy of God, he's out of that whole era of fitna, of strife, he's all right. So Sunnis will shed a tear for him, but they won't endlessly revisit in this kind of forensic, dissecting, tear-jerking way a tragic historical episode. That's seen as being unhealthy. Do you think that this has become a very strong part of Shia identity through the centuries that followed? For the Shi'i sense of self, there has been no more traumatic and significant event than the death of the Prophet's own grandson in the sands of Karbala. Whether it is healthy, and this is sort of the Sunni critique again, for a complete religious movement to take its identity from a moment of darkness, tragedy, loss of hope, is another matter. But yes, the Shi'i self-identification as a community that is wronged, that has been misunderstood, persecuted, misrepresented, is a real one. If you look at the historical facts, of course, it wasn't the Sunnis who were persecuting them. It wasn't a Sunni who killed Ali. It wasn't Sunnis who killed the subsequent imams. These were people who were members of various sects or tribal affiliations. It's very important to recognize all 12 of the Shi'i imams are revered by Sunni Muslims. But subsequently, there was a certain culture of blame, I think, that emerged, certainly from the third and the fourth centuries of Shi'ism onwards, that turned what were eventually traumatic political events into ideological markers of a cosmic battle between the forces of darkness and the forces of the Prophet's family who were forever cast out into the shadows by evil tyrants. But that's a travesty of the actual historical events, which were much more messy and ambiguous than that. I know this is hard to pinpoint, but at what point of history would you say that the divide was very clear between Sunni and Shia Islam? In many parts of the Islamic world, at least until recently, the divide was not clear at all. In many parts of the Sunni Ottoman world, for instance, there was a strong tradition of revering the 12 imams, uh, who the Shia often regard as being, as it were, their personal markers of identity. There was a very large amount of intermarriage. People were aware of who they were, but it wasn't a large issue. I think it's only in the last 15 or 20 years when some key places, Iraq, northwest frontier of Pakistan, Afghanistan, a few other places, have become battlefields for proxy wars, usually the Iranians and the Saudis, that these latent tensions have become actual. It's a little bit like the situation in Northern Ireland. In Northern Ireland, the actual theological ritual differences between the Protestants and the Catholics, they're bigger than they are between the Sunnis and the Shia. But normally, Protestants and Catholics get on reasonably well. But when there is some kind of national or political dimension at stake, very often people can fall back on those identity markers and things can turn nasty. The family of the Prophet, Ahlul Bayt, his daughter, Fatima, his son-in-law, Ali, his two grandsons, Hassan and Hussein, play a key role in Shia Islam. How are they viewed in Sunni Islam? Well, Sunni Islam, like Shia Islam, reveres the Ahlul Bayt, the people of the house, literally, the descendants of the Prophet. Most people who visit the tombs of the Ahlul Bayt are Sundays. 
The political dimensions of that, however, are absent. The idea that not only were they privileged saints of God, but they should have, by virtue of their DNA, have been automatically always the political leaders of the Muslim community. It's not a point that's well taken amongst Sunnis, but revered as saints and scholars, certainly. It must be very sensitive, though. I mean, I'm from Egypt, and of course, you know, as a child, you are brought up you know, as a Muslim child, you're brought up with the Islamic traditions. But this idea of succession was never really discussed. Yes. In terms of the actual sort of requirements and the practices of the religion, disputes over who should or should not have been the ruler more than a thousand years ago shouldn't matter a whole lot to ordinary Muslims. There are real issues of jobs, of gender issues, of politics, of prayer of the real issues that religionists confront don't really have anything to do with who should or should not have been a caliph 1400 years ago. I think there's something very unhealthy afoot in the contemporary Islamic world to turn arguments over political legitimacy in the 8th, 9th century into something that should really be dividing people today on top of all of the other stuff that they have to deal with is extremely irresponsible. And those agencies of various states that are securing their own interest by ratcheting up resentments on both sides really have a lot to answer for, I'm afraid. Irresponsible, but prevalent. Yes, unfortunately. If you look at, for instance, Ottoman Iraq, they ruled in Iraq for four centuries. And the Sunnis did not interfere with the Shi'i shrines or with any of the practices or the, the existence of the, the Shi'i majority in southern Iraq. In fact, under Ottoman rule, the Shi'a actually flourished and became more numerous. That belies our sense now that these are ancient hatreds, that they've always been at each other's throats, that it's all suicide bombing and hatred and cursing sermons. That's just not the historical reality. Historical reality is that these are two very similar forms of Islam. To look at them praying, you have to have a fairly practiced eye to know what the difference is. The fast of Ramadan, it's there. The Hajj pilgrimage, it's there with certain small tweaks. It's the same religion compared to, say, the difference between the Methodists and the Greek Orthodox. It's a tiny, tiny differentiation. But the political issue for various sort of cynical issues of external manipulation has unfortunately turned what were fairly minor devotional and legitimist orientations into matters of life and death in some places. And once that genie is out of the bottle, it's very hard to put it back in again. If you were to explain to someone the Shia and Sunni sect, just tell us about the similarities between the two sects. Well, religionists have a bad habit of inflating differences that are in the nature of them not central. But Islam has five pillars. There is the belief in one God and Muhammad's apostleship. Sunnis and Shia agree on that. Five daily prayers, the alms tax, the zakat, the fast of Ramadan and the hajj. There are certain small tweakings, but there are also different interpretations within Shiism and within Sunnism. Shiism is itself, as it were, a broad church. There are the Zaydi Shia, there are the Ja'fari Shia, there are the Ismaili Shia, amongst whom there are enormous differences in practice. It's not a single phenomenon. Sunnism is perhaps slightly more united than that, but still there are internal differences. If you know your Islam, you can observe people praying and you can see, ah, oh, he's a Shi'i, he's a Sunni. But generally speaking, the differences are relatively slight. What would you say are the main differences, for instance, in how Shia and Sunni pray? 
If you're not a Muslim and you wander into a mosque in a place like Dubai, you wouldn't really be able to tell the difference between the Sunnis and the Shia as they worship. It's not like the much more obvious difference between, say, United Reformed Church and Catholics in England, where the liturgy is really a completely different thing. It's so rooted in the practice of the Prophet himself and the early generations that the differences can seem slight. One of the differences, of course, is that the prayer is always announced with the adhan, the call to prayer, which is different for the Shia, because after there is no God but God, Muhammad is the messenger of God, they also say, I bear witness that Ali is the saint, the friend, the intimate of God. So if you hear that, you can be sure that it's a, a Shi'i mosque. And there are certain adjustments in the actual sort of mechanics of the worship, the way in which the hands are held, for instance, is something people know. The 12 Shi'i custom generally is not to prostrate directly upon carpets, but to put an inert small brick of earth or dried clay between the forehead and the carpet as one prostrates. And it's customary, though not really required, for that clay to come from the battlefield at Karbala. It's also noticeable that even though Sunnis and Shia pray five times a day, the Shia customarily, after the dawn prayer, will have the two prayers in the middle of the day said together and the two prayers at the end of the day said together. So it looks as if they're just praying three times a day. What about the fast of Ramadan? The two groups also share the same fasting month, which is Ramadan. There are certain slight differences, most notably the fact that the Shia will break the fast somewhat later than the Sunnis do, often half an hour, 40 minutes or so after the Sunnis. There's a Quranic verse or a commandment which says, continue fasting until the night. For the Sunnis, that's understood as meaning nightfall, which is when the sun goes down, when it starts to get dark. So the sun goes down, you break the fast. The Shia would say, mm, sunset is not night. And so they wait in a kind of precautionary way for an additional period until it does get dark. Are there other differences, for instance, in Islamic law, in scholarship? Early Islamic law didn't really divide into Sunnis and Shia. There are certain points which are often referred to as areas where Shi'i law can be more permissive, most famously the issue of temporary marriages, what's called Sira. For Sunnis, the view is that you cannot have a valid marriage contract that expires after a particular term. Whereas for the Shia, you can have that as a condition of a marriage contract. The idea being that there are travelers, they might need to find a bit of female solace locally as they travel around, and they don't see any particular reason why there shouldn't be such a provision in a marriage contract. Uh, they don't see that there's a prohibition. So in the Shi'i world, temporary marriages are often an integrated part of people's social reality. In the Sunni world, it's not legitimate. It's regarded as an adulterous practice and as one that sometimes can degenerate into something that looks a bit like prostitution. What about leadership? Sunni Islam is decentered. There is no universally accepted senior scholar of the Sunni Islamic world. The Sunni Muslims will attach themselves to whatever senior jurist or theologian who seems to them to be the most credible. In the Shi'i tradition, there's been much more of a tradition of a full-time paid clergy. And indeed, one of the things that one does with one's tithe, the religious tax which Muslims are obliged to pay in the Shi'i context, is that it goes for the upkeep of this class of clergymen. 
Uh, it's not like the clergy of the Catholic Church. You know, they're married, um, often they have businesses, they're part of a mainstream society. But quite often they can evolve into hierarchies with a rank of an ordinary mullah, and then above that there might be a, a hudrat al-Islam, and then ayatullah, and at the top the marji al-Taqlid. These are terms that developed historically. But sometimes it does look like a much more uh, hierarchical and fixed form of religion than Sunnism, which can look quite, as it were, Protestant and chaotic. After the Arab Spring, there's been a rise in political Islam. And this rise in political Islam and rise of Islamists to power has then also brought about the question of this competition between Sunni and Shia Islam in terms of power in the region, be it places like Saudi Arabia, Egypt or Tunisia or Iran. Do you think that the Arab Spring has deepened that divide of Sunni-Shia Islam? Well, the key question that confronts modern Muslim societies is not... Should we be secular or religious? Because overwhelmingly, the populations, when they have a chance to vote, vote for something religious. The question is, should a politicized religious response to modernity be inclusive, embracing, open-minded, and relaxed about the necessary diversity of today's world? Or should it be something that idealistically tries to impose a single utopian, perhaps totalitarian model on everyone? And there are plenty of people who support both of those extremes. If it's the former, then there shouldn't really be a problem about integrating Sunnis, Shi'is and the other denominations that are out there into a large Muslim sense of joint political purpose. If it's the kind of totalitarian model of the Taliban or some of the Shi'i totalitarian movements in Iran, then of course they're going to be exclusionary, they're going to be persecutory, and they're going to preside over very fractured, unhappy and sometimes strife-torn cultures. Those two points of view are both well populated. Which one prevails is something that we all have to watch with considerable concern and just pray for a happy outcome. Do you see a time when Muslims in the UK will define themselves as Muslims rather than Sunni Muslim or Shia Muslim? Well, there's no reason why one can't have a hyphenated identity and be proud of that. There are different ways of being a Sunni Muslim. There's no such thing as a generic Sunni Muslim. There are four orthodox schools of Sunni Islam. There are different theological perspectives. People identify themselves as conservatives or literalists or liberals, and they're still Sunni Muslims. So to be a Sunni Muslim or a Shi'i Muslim, I don't think is intrinsically something that's problematic. What's problematic is when external forces or the forces of anxiety, fear, vengefulness start to manipulate those badges of identity and turn them into boundary issues with results that can sometimes be truly calamitous for real communities on the ground. Tim Winter, thank you very much. You've been listening to Things Unseen, the program for people of faith and those who are just curious about life's spiritual dimension. I'm Shaima Khalil, and Things Unseen was brought to you by CTVC. And you can hear this program again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.